To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us on Bloomberg Sound On. We're live from Washington as we do each weekday at this time. The headline from the White House, there are simply no good options. They said it before about the trillion-dollar coin. Now about the 14th Amendment. Here's Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on ABC This Week. There is no way to protect um, our financial system and our economy other than Congress doing its job and raising the debt ceiling and enabling us to pay our bills. And we should not get to the point where we need to consider whether the president can go on uh, issuing debt. This would be a constitutional crisis. But of course, people wouldn't be asking that if we were not pretty much at that point already. Constitutional scholars and economists split on the idea that the administration could in fact continue issuing debt by citing a provision in the Constitution that says the validity of public debts, quote, shall not be questioned, unquote. So on, now on the eve of the big meeting at the White House with President Biden and congressional leaders, and by that I mean Kevin McCarthy, the real question is, what's the incentive, right? So what's the incentive to compromise? Dilip Singh, former Biden administration economic advisor, he's now at PGIM Fixed Income tells Bloomberg TV this morning it's going to take a spasm, something you probably don't want to see in the market. The incentives are just not yet in place. McCarthy could lose his speakership if he folds early to the president with a clean increase in the debt limit. The president can give a nod to anything near the scale of spending cuts proposed by McCarthy because they would undercut much of his domestic agenda and lose his political base. So I'm afraid market stress is still what's needed to create cover for face-saving compromise. Oh, market stress. Not a great starting point for this meeting tomorrow, but let's talk about it with Eric Wasson, Bloomberg congressional reporter. Eric, I realize I haven't even mentioned the words debt ceiling or debt limit yet this hour. And everyone, I'm sure, knows what I'm talking about here. And it's all going to come to a head tomorrow afternoon uh, at the White House. Are we expecting results from this meeting? Well, you know, I don't think a deal would be announced. That would, would be really shocking to me. But they could announce either a framework or a process. And I'm, I'm betting on a process. You know, they could deputize, for example, the heads of the Appropriations Committee to come up with a top-line budget number for mm-hmm. discretionary appropriations. And, and those guys could meet over the next couple of weeks and then perhaps come up with, you know, maybe not the $130 billion cut that McCarthy wants, but somewhere in the middle. Uh, that's one thing. And then, you know, they could both say, well, this is about the debt ceiling or this is just about the budget and call it a day. That's the way things could work out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's lots of lots of risk, as you pointed out, that things that things don't. Yeah, I I suspect this goes fairly long, right? The, the last meeting was lengthy. Uh, the, the one was, gosh, 80-something, 90 days ago now. Uh, Kevin McCarthy came out, did the full routine in the driveway at the stakeout at the White House. Will he have good things to say tomorrow? Would it behoove him to to show progress like he did the first time? I mean, of course, he. I think he does want a deal. You know, he doesn't uh, he doesn't really like to stand off as much as anybody. Uh, but he can't mm-hmm. really cut uh, a low ball deal, and as you mentioned, survive the uh, the conservatives secured a mechanism by which. Any one member can bring a vote of no confidence. It's also also a big question of how Democrats would behave in that scenario. But even if the Democrats bailed him out and you know provided enough votes to keep him in the chair, he would be you know a wounded a wounded animal at that point politically. Um, so you know it's just not a good a good place for him to go. Uh, you know I tried to press Chip Roy and other of the House Freedom Caucus members. You know if he came back with with 65 billion cuts, how are you going to react? They wouldn't say. They don't want to talk about hmm. how they react to a compromise. They want to keep their cards close to their vest. And, of course, there are some, like Ralph Norman, another Freedom Caucus member, who said he would not vote for anything uh, smaller cuts than the, those that passed the House two weeks ago. And he's, he and others aren't going to be there on the final, uh, you know, 
vote. It's going to be a part of. That's why Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, is in the meeting. He's going to have to. Mm-hmm. He's going to have to provide votes for a compromise. And you know, he's also been commenting that he's not ready to endorse anything. So you know, it's it's a it's four players there, and McConnell. The uh, minority leader in the Senate made a big move, I thought, this weekend, uh, signing on to a letter saying he wouldn't, uh, you know, vote for a clean increase so uh, or provide cloture, which means shut off debate. Um, so that's another sign that they're all kind of lining off uh, with their other respective teams and facing off pretty, pretty starkly here. I'll tell you what, I hope you're planning for a long day tomorrow, eating your Wheaties. Eric Wasson, Bloomberg congressional reporter. We'll be covering that for us, uh, as always. And we want to talk to Tim Romer about all of this. The former ambassador to India was also uh, a congressman and, in fact, was a 9-11 commissioner. He's now current executive director, strategic counselor at APCO Worldwide, and knows a little bit about cunning deals. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thanks for being back with us on Bloomberg Radio. I always enjoy the discussion. As you consider the amount of pressure that Kevin McCarthy is getting from within his own house, you add that letter from the Senate that Eric Wasson mentioned, pretty much every Republican senator on there saying, nope, don't look over here for a deal, no clean debt limit bill. Who does he actually need to impress tomorrow, President Biden or, or, or Republicans here in Washington? Well, Joe, good to be with you, too. And uh, we've got a very, very uh, difficult uh, negotiation taking place tomorrow with uh, a lot at stake in the markets, uh, people's uh, 401k accounts, and uh, just market volatility um, if we can't get to some kind of a solution on this. Look, there are four potential outcomes, not immediately after the meeting yesterday or yeah. tomorrow at the White House, but coming on. You can pass something outright. You could have a short-term extension, which mm-hmm. might be the more likely outcome. You could uh, have a game of chicken and just see who gives first and what the markets uh, do. Or, you know, you try to circumvent the process, either with the 14th Amendment yep. uh, as an emergency clause, or you have a discharge petition on the House floor and Democrats try to um, cajole and persuade five Republicans to go along with them to get something cleaner done on the House floor. But we're we are uh, we're rapidly approaching uh, game time for all four of these folks to sit down and have a very serious negotiation, Joe. Well, we really are. And I I just wonder when you consider the idea of compromise and I don't suspect we're going to really see much of it until the market starts to, to really protest what's going on here. But everybody is so used to this being worked out at the at the last minute that that might take some more time here. I just wonder. How do both parties come out of the meeting tomorrow looking like they accomplished something? It, everyone's got something to check off here uh, on, on their list. And for Kevin McCarthy, it's difficult because he's not been terribly specific. He didn't actually put a full budget down. and He's been beyond top line budget cuts, not terribly specific about what would give him a win. And that's kind of the point here, right? We have to find a way for both sides to be able to take credit for some kind of progress. Well, I think you've put your finger, you know, right on on the issue here, Joe, and that is tomorrow will probably look more like, um, you know, an initial uh, strategic positioning for a later deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody is going to try to look good to their base. They're going to try to look strong in their negotiating points. I think President Biden probably does not want to give too much on what he has tried to get. It is a clean up-and-down vote, but he'll probably talk to Speaker McCarthy in private about, uh, you know, what do we do on budget reform? What might we talk about in terms of some spending cuts, COVID return of money that's not spent, student debt relief issues that the courts may decide upon anyway? Uh, You know, what what can they talk about to eventually get to a deal that, McCarthy can sell to his House members. I mean, Joe, this is a little bit like, uh, you know, I've heard the term passing a kidney stone. I've never done it before. (laughs) Uh, It's really painful. It happens at some point. But depending upon the size of the stone, it can be very, very excruciating process and uh, painful to all sides. Yeah, well, that's quite an image, uh, Ambassador. I'll tell you, it looks like this White House might have to pass a couple of them this week because we have the meeting tomorrow. (laughs) We've got an inflation report out on Wednesday, and then Title 42, uh, of all things, lifts on Thursday. Uh, 
from a political communication standpoint, how do you prepare the nation for all of these things at once? Or do you end up Friday with an even lower approval rating? Well, the president got some tough news over the weekend with a poll that said he was at 36 percent. And uh, other polls have showed him, you know, 39, 40, 41. So that's not a great, strong bargaining position for him to go into this debt uh, uh, reduction bill and uh, on border immigration policy, which is very, very vital. And the Sudan hearings that are going to take place on the Hill. Uh, we have a critical situation happening in Africa right. where China is making more and more inroads. And the United States would like to uh, see, you know, peaceful outcome of the civil war and 100,000 people leaving uh, uh, Sudan in the last couple of weeks, uh, getting out as quickly as they can. So, you know, this is a tough week for the president, uh, and, and he's got to show strength. And I, I would say this, too, Joe. McCarthy has shown resiliency and uh, some unpredicted um, power in the last couple of weeks. Uh, he got a, a bill through the House on debt relief. Uh, Boehner couldn't do it. Ryan, previous speakers, could not do it. It ended up... Uh, bringing both of those Republican speakers down before, but McCarthy did it. So Biden is now negotiating with a, a, a stronger speaker, McCarthy, which is both good and bad. It's, it's bad for Biden in the, in the sense that uh, he's got a stronger position, especially with McConnell's letter over the weekend, showing Republican Senate support for the House Republican position. Uh, but uh, it also shows that with the, you know McCarthy's strength, he could potentially sell the deal to his caucus does he end up losing half his caucus on a vote does he lose a third of them and i think one of the keys to look at here is going to be congressman chip roy from texas Mm -hmm. does he eventually sign on to a deal or even more importantly does chip roy loudly oppose it and go to the floor and speak against it? Or does he quietly oppose it and not make much of fuss about it? That will be a key barometer to see whether or not this gets done. It's really important you said that. Eric Wasson, who was on before the ambassador, used the same name. Now you're hearing Tim Romer uh, tell you to watch Chip Roy. Uh, he's the canary, I guess, in this case, ambassador. And we're awfully curious to see how this is going to play out in the coming days. Tim Romer, former ambassador to India, former congressman with us again on Bloomberg Radio. Many thanks, Ambassador, for the insights. Let's assemble the panel. I want to get their take on all of this. I've been dying to hear from from Jeannie Shanzano, Lisa Camuso-Miller throughout the weekend, knowing that this conversation added a couple of wrinkles, including that letter from the Senate Republicans. And then, of course, you add that polling data for the president. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on the hour uh, with our panel. But, Jeannie, it's not getting easier as we approach the meeting tomorrow. And I wonder if you're you're in agreement with the ambassador. Is it possible for both sides to come out looking like they've got a win tomorrow? And, and I ask you that knowing that that would help to advance the conversation to somewhere positive. Yeah, I mean, I hope it is. It's a good sign that they are talking finally. But I have to tell you, over the weekend, hearing from Janet Yellen, you played the clip. She is saying, you know, it's not my ball game. I'm not responsible. You look at the Senate Republicans, they're not responsible. Joe Biden saying Republicans in the House are responsible. Everybody is passing the buck and pointing the finger at everybody else, Mm -hmm. which makes me very pessimistic about progress in this meeting because Somebody is going to have to take responsibility for them to come out, as the ambassador said, with a framework or a process, which or or I think your previous guest said with a framework or a process and in order to move forward. And I'm not sure how you do that unless people are willing to take responsibility. Right. We're not going to solve this thing tomorrow, obviously, uh, Lisa, but it seems awfully important to what happens next here. If Kevin McCarthy comes out in the driveway and says, He is not a good faith negotiator. I knew it all along. The president's not playing ball. This could go down the tubes really quickly. If he came out and said, hey, you know what? We made some progress. Then they live to see another day. Yeah. You know, the best way I can put it, Joe, is it just feels like a big game of chicken, right? Everybody says they're not going to budge. Everybody says nothing's going to happen. Well, the only people that suffer are the American people in our economy. And this is just it's bad for everybody, but it's especially bad for the White House. They are going to have to deal with um, just an incredible amount of criticism, regardless of, of how this goes down. I mean, it's yeah. going to be, I think it's down to the last possible minute. And um, it, to me, the Republicans look stronger than ever, especially now that the Senate has signed on. 
All right, quick take from Jeannie and Lisa. We're going to dig into this a little bit more coming up to talk specifics here on what an actual compromise could look like. It's Monday. Time for new ideas. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You've heard some of the more outlandish, some of the more creative ideas in solving the debt limit crisis because, well, that's what we do on Bloomberg. Yeah, the trillion-dollar coin, we talked that up and down lately. It's been the 14th Amendment. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wasn't having any of it when she was asked about these potential options on ABC this week. What to do if Congress fails to meet its responsibility? There are simply no good options. And the ones that you've listed are among the not good options. <laughs> I got nothing else good to offer here except a deal. And that process begins tomorrow when everybody sits down, uh, presumably in the cabinet room of the White House. Kevin McCarthy has his day. Hakeem Jeffries, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, and, of course, the president. Is this thing going to the wee hours? They bring in sandwiches. Nobody knows exactly. But the optics are pretty tough. The timing is even tougher. And I just wonder, what does a win look like? Both sides need to feel like they got something. And that's where the panel comes in. Jeannie Shanzano, Democratic analyst, Bloomberg politics contributor, joined today by Lisa Camuso Miller, former RNC communications director, partner at Reset Public Affairs, and two trusted voices. You know, we, we can't get too partisan in these conversations because, you know, we won't even get through this program, never mind the actual meeting tomorrow. So, Lisa, let's pick up where we left off here. Kevin McCarthy. And pretty clear it doesn't have a lot of wiggle room. He's got people in, in the House caucus, the House Republican caucus, saying that they will not vote for anything less than was passed just a couple of weeks ago in the House. So is there something else he can do, maybe not using dollar signs, a statement that he can make that will actually make them happy to go into a second meeting? How does he find that with Joe Biden tomorrow? Well, I mean, I think he's probably got the hardest job of all because of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, Joe, you're absolutely right. These members have said that 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 bill is the floor and not the ceiling. There is no negotiating (laughs) at all. Uh, And that's that's a tough place to be, especially because the White House and the Democrats are saying that they will do nothing but a clean debt ceiling uh, piece of legislation. So this this now is really like I said earlier. I mean, it's a game of chicken. Who's going to budge? And McCarthy can't. He really can't. And the White House has really got to find a way to get uh, to get the Republicans what they need in order to get a compromise while also making sure that we don't default. Because, Joe, I mean, that is of all of these things, that is the worst possible thing that could happen. So does Joe Biden then need to show up with something for Kevin McCarthy? He told uh, his interview on MSNBC a couple of days ago, he's the most experienced guy in the room. That's why his age should be palatable, Jeannie. So what does that experience bring to the table tomorrow? You know, I I think Joe Biden has got to come prepared to do what he always did as Senator Biden, which is to say we can find a middle ground. We can move forward. This is the brand that he sold the American public. We can work across the aisle. We can work together. Mm -hmm. And so I do think he's got to come up with a plausible strategy for doing that. And there are ways to do that. Quite frankly, you know, how can they all win? to come out, have Democrats in the Biden administration say, we're going to get the debt ceiling in, we're going to negotiate, and Republicans to say the same thing. The timing be damned. I mean, the American public's not going to know once which who blinked first if they are both able to come out and do that. So there is a solution to doing this. But the problem is everybody has dug in their heels so much. Now, you know, the optimistic part of this is that they are meeting 
And so hopefully they are come prepared. But for Biden to offer something to McCarthy is probably a non-starter for McCarthy's base. And so that means he's going to depend on Democrats. And that might mean he's not going to have a speakership much longer. So it is a big challenge all around, particularly, I think, for McCarthy. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not like the president has popular opinion uh, at his back here. Lisa, let's get into this poll for a minute uh, that we just referred to. ABC News, Washington Post. This is two weeks into a re-election campaign, and it's a new low uh, approval rating. It dipped to 36 percent, just below his previous low of last year, while a significantly higher percentage of people, 56 percent, disapprove of the job the president has done so far. Uh, as you probably heard, the, the numbers on the, the, the election are not good. He actually loses to Donald Trump in the hypothetical Head to head here. Lisa, how much should he be reading into this this far out? I mean, he should be reading into it. But there's no doubt about it, Joe. Uh, I mean, I guess the good news is that there's not much further to fall. Uh, but really, I, there has got to be a way that the White House can figure out how to thread the needle, uh, not only find themselves uh, a winner as it comes to the debt ceiling, but also, Joe, this week is going to be unbelievable. This is like this is the Super Bowl of politics this week between sure the is. debt ceiling discussion and then uh, Title 42 being potentially lifted with with all of the, the stuff that's going on at the border. The White House is looking in the eyes of many, many people just very weak and that uh, that platform as well as, as it comes to that discussion. Mm -hmm. This is just uh, really going to be the kind of opportunity or the kind of uh, pitfall that really could make or break the White House. Jeannie, the poll was conducted among a random national sample of 1,006 adults. Overall, uh, results have a margin of error, plus or minus three and a half percentage points. As our political scientists at the table here, how does this methodology uh, hit you because it's making big headlines. It is making huge headlines. And, you know, I I do always say we should look at polls in, in the context of many, many polls. This is one dip in, if you will, at a time. And as you mentioned, it's a random sample of U.S. adults. It is not registered voters, nor is it likely voters. And yeah. so that's one thing I think we have to pause on, which is that if we are looking at this in the context of an election, and I understand it's early for the pollsters to be doing likely and registered, but if we were talking about it as potentially telling us what might happen in November 2024, then this is a little bit, uh, you know, something to take into account that these are random U.S. adults and not registered voters or likely voters, on top of which the margin of error gets even bigger to 5.5 when you look at the samples of just Republicans and just Democrats. And that's a fairly healthy margin. That means 10 points, essentially, from where we're getting a number. 36% means 46% or 26% when you look at it that way. So that's also a big swing. All that said, Lisa, does this poll have enough credibility for Joe Biden to worry? I mean, I think it has to. Right. I mean, the, the problem here and, I, and Jeannie's absolutely right. I mean, there is so much here that that allows for uh, a, you know the margin of error to really be what it is. The problem, though, Joe, is that we have been continually hearing this over and over, that there is a, a high level of dissatisfaction, yeah. a high level of frustration with the White House. And if they're if they're smart and they're looking at it, you know, as a whole piece and a whole picture of how uh, the general uh, public feels, then I think that it's it's illustrative enough that they should use it as a as a resource and as a tool to find out what are people caring about and how is it that they're going to reach them in order to get that that number back to where it really needs to be in order for him to be successful. The age issue uh, looming large here in this research, 26 percent say Joe Biden at 80 years old is just too old for another term. Now, remember, Donald Trump's only four years younger than him and 43 percent say they're both too old. I mentioned Joe Biden answering a question about this in his interview on MSNBC. There's not a Fortune 500 company in the world looking to hire a CEO in his 80s. So why would an 82 year old Joe Biden be the right person for the most important job in the world? Because I've acquired a hell of a lot of wisdom. I know more than the vast majority of people. I'm more experienced than anybody's ever run for the office. And I think I've proven myself to be honorable as well as also effective. From his conversation with Stephanie Rule, Jeannie, 
Is that going to work? Is that the answer for the next year and change? Yeah, that's the best he's going to do. His message has been what he said to Stephanie Rule, and then watch me and judge me on my record. Yeah, I think yeah. the reality of what we're there we're seeing is this is a referendum on Joe Biden. Very tough for him to pull this through. But if it's a referendum on Donald Trump, very tough for Donald Trump. So <laughs> the goal here on both sides is to point the finger at the other guy and say, look at him, not me. And so that's the reality. And to add to Lisa's Super Bowl, we get Donald Trump on CNN this week, which is going to be in New Hampshire, which is going to be another part of the big Super Bowl. Uh, yeah, there's not enough time in the day, Lisa. But if you have to answer this question 100 more times, was that the model? For, for success, for Joe's answer, you mean? Yeah, for Joe Biden, exactly. Uh, you know, I think I, we've, we've heard this over and over, but I do think that there is something to the fact that these two are they're, they're really linked to mm -hmm. one another. If one runs then, and the other runs, then really the age issue it gets uh, erased to some degree because they're both they're 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 up there. Right. Um, but the other thing, too, is that, you know, Biden really has to he has to find a short answer and he has to yeah. move along. Being the most experienced doesn't necessarily make you the most qualified if you're in your age. Huh. Right. I mean, you can be qualified, but this is a job that really takes a lot of stamina and it takes a lot out of you. And, and having a younger candidate is definitely, I think, desirable yeah. by many, many, many voters. We've got more ahead with Lisa Camusa Miller and Jeannie Shanzano. We're also going to talk to Steve Dennis, Bloomberg congressional reporter who sat down a little while ago with Mitch McConnell. We'll see what's going on inside his brain. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. But what about Mitch? You've probably heard that question asked here on Bloomberg as we approach the X date. Could the minority leader in the Senate end up being a deal maker somehow on the debt ceiling? Swoop in at the last minute, save everyone. He certainly has not been sounding like it. This agreement must be reached because we must never default. And the agreement needs to be reached between the speaker and the president. Right, that was Mitch McConnell two weeks ago. And Bloomberg congressional reporter Steve Dennis just sat down with him. The story, in fact, just hit the terminal. And he's with us now. Steve, welcome. It appears Mitch McConnell is staying consistent here. What did he tell you? Yeah, I mean, he basically said that he has been uh, privately and publicly telling the, the president that he's not going to bail him out this time, um, that he has to negotiate with McCarthy. He basically he told me that in 2019, Donald Trump faced a very similar situation. He needed to raise the debt limit. Yep. And he told Trump at that time that Trump needed to cut, cut a deal with Nancy Pelosi. And, and they did. They got a two-year spending cap deal. They raised the debt ceiling. He sees this as the same situation and says Biden's got to cut a deal with McCarthy. He did predict there would be a deal. He said they were absolutely definitely not going to default. Hmm. And yet, you know, we have a, a more difficult situation than I think anybody's seen if, in a long time, at least since 2011. Um, I, you know, I asked him about 2011 when he did cut a deal with then Vice President Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And he said that the players are just too different this time around. He thinks that this House is much more reluctant to do a deal and would not accept a Senate-negotiated deal this time. And so maybe that changes. You know, I mean, sometimes when markets start going haywire and you start yeah, right. getting closer and closer to the X date, maybe he'll change his tune. But right now he is, uh, he is staying firm that this has to be done by McCarthy. This is great reporting here as we talk to Stephen Dennis uh, just uh, coming out of his interview with Mitch McConnell. So what does that say about the meeting tomorrow? Mitch uh, goes to the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, just sits quiet in the cabinet room. Yeah, I mean, you know, he said that, you know, when I pointed out the Democrats keep saying that they they hope he comes up with some kind of plan to get us get everybody out of this mess. He reached into his pocket uh, for, for this plan, and he said, you know, people seem to think I have this secret plan that I'm going to, you know, pop out and it's going to solve everybody's problems. And he said that there is no secret plan, basically. That this, you know, he's going to make the same point uh, in the meeting that he's made publicly now for, for a while. 
that, you know, the McCarthy's team and the president's team just need to sit down and hash this out. Um, you know, and he also signed, you know, over the weekend, he signed this letter with 42 other Republicans saying that yes. they would actually filibuster a clean debt limit bill. Right. Uh, I asked him about that and whether there was a risk that Republicans would potentially own a default and and the economic crisis that would follow. And and then he you know he kind of shuts that down by just insisting that a deal would be reached. There would be no default, not now, not ever. Hmm. Um, but that's you know certainly putting a lot of confidence yes, in, uh, in, the, in the president buckling um, on his no negotiation stance on the debt limit. Great work, Stephen, and thank you for coming in to talk to us about it. I'll point everyone to the column on the terminal. McConnell warns he has no secret plan to solve U.S. debt impasse. Great photo of him in the office, too, as he spends time talking to our own Stephen Dennis. Let's reassemble the panel and get their take on this. Jeannie Shanzano and Lisa Camuso-Miller. Jeannie, I don't know if Joe Biden thought maybe he'd make eye contact across the table with Mitch tomorrow, that maybe they would have a side meeting that... There might be some other way to get around this, but he really wants everyone to know he's not going to play that role. Yeah, he's barely, he's, McConnell is clearly saying, don't look to me, Joe Biden. Right. We're not going to go so back. So does that make it harder again. or is he saving us a little bit of time here? Well, you know, I do think it makes it harder. And, and I agree so much. And Steve's piece is so good. It, you know, the reality is it was very different in 11 with the players and the ability to get a deal through the GOP house. The other reality is the bailout in 2011 helped McConnell and helped his party because they were convinced that they were going to be hurt if they didn't get a deal. That is a little different today or a lot different. As you look around, members of the GOP in the letter that he mentioned with the 43 senators say this very clearly, which is that they believe that Biden is going to experience and the Democrats are going to be experiencing the hurt this time. So he's got little incentive for a deal. And that makes this very different. Now, he may swoop in at the last minute. People are talking about McConnell time may come you know, to pass at some point. <laughs> but right now, he doesn't see this as, you know, to his or the Republicans advantage. He's better off in his mind staying quiet. And I think that's what we're going to see on Tuesday. So, Lisa, is this Mitch McConnell saying to Joe Biden, look, you know what? We're two old guys and the way we used to do business does not work for this new House majority that Kevin McCarthy is dealing with. Is that the message here? No way. No way. I think that I, the best part about Mitch McConnell is that he always while he while I, I know Steve is right and I know that McConnell does not have a plan. Yeah. He always he always sees around the corner quicker than anyone else. The fact that he is saying that we are uh, that we are not going to default, that we will come to a decision. It tells me that he has confidence that this is going to be done. And that to me, I, I never, ever underestimate Mitch McConnell. I always know that he knows the best of what's going on politically, uh, whether people like it or not. But I do also think this is true. I think that McConnell knows that if if uh, McCarthy can strike a deal and that something can get done in the House, that he knows that his conference will will come along and will go along with what the agreement is. And so that, I think, is how he sees it. He sees it more difficult to get through the House because there are so many hardliners there and mm. that if they can come to an agreement, then the Senate will go along. So absolutely no way. I'd never underestimate him. He always seems to know three steps before the rest of us. So there's still time for McConnell time is what you're saying. <laughs> I think so. Jeannie, what do you make of that? And, and what did it tell you when he signed that letter last weekend? You know, I think it told us that this thing is not going to be over on Tuesday or anytime soon. And yeah. so, yeah, I, I do agree with Lisa that he is very good at reading the room. He knows what's coming. But I also think we have to pay attention to the calendar. The U.S. economy, the U.S. currency is being hurt now. And that is a problem. And so regardless of what he sees coming forward, they should act quickly. And he's not prepared to do that. Jeannie Shanzano and Lisa Camuso-Miller. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
Thanks, I'm Joe Matthew, along with Kaylee Lines in Washington. And it looks like we've got some breaking news here, Kaylee. It's great to see you, by the way. Thanks for keeping everything together while I was gone for a couple of days. And thanks for coming back today to talk about real stuff. We've got our eyes on the banks, and so does the Fed. Yeah, we just got the latest senior loan officer opinion survey for the first quarter. So this went through the end of March. March, of course, being the month that brought all the turmoil in banks. And it basically gives us a read on what banks are doing in terms of lending. What this survey shows is that across all, all sorts of benchmarks, including loans to businesses, on balance, banks have seen tighter standards and weaker demand for commercial industrial, which is C&I loans, to large and middle market firms. Then when you look at loans to households, banks also are reporting that lending standards tightened, including across all categories of residential real estate. So this really speaks speaks to what we all were talking about in the aftermath of these bank failures, whether or not banks were going to start just lending less as a result. And especially for these smaller banks, they are really the bedrock of lending in the U.S. economy, really fueling a lot of that economic activity uh, by giving out these loans, especially to businesses. So this idea of them pulling back kind of feeds into the, the narrative around a potential credit crunch in the U.S. economy. One thing I would also add, Joe, is that the Fed had already seen this data when it made its decision last week. And Chairman mm. Powell actually referenced it in his press conference last Wednesday and said, yeah, it's going to show lending standards have tightened. Uh, and then the demand part, of course, which is, is the another way of doing of the Fed's work for it. Right. Well, this is what the Fed wants to achieve in theory. This is the transmission mechanism of monetary policy. You raise rates and then you get credit conditions in the economy to tighten so that things slow down. Mm -hmm. It just becomes a question of the pace of that slowdown. Do we see a choking off too quickly where then no one can get access to loans? Businesses uh, then can't, you know, grow and develop and do all of these things. Uh, So it's a very fine line that the Fed has to walk here because you don't want necessarily an outright credit crunch, even if to a certain extent you do want a credit pullback. Wow, there's a lot there. You just start wondering if if we're actually there. You know, you mentioned the interest rate hike. Does that mean that we're there or potentially <laughs> overshot? Or are they really going to think again about doing something at the next meeting? Uh, I suspect Mick Mulvaney's got some thoughts on all of this. Oh, I'm sure he does. The former OMB director, former acting White House chief of staff and Somehow they always drop former member of Congress. I try to remind people of that, Mick. Welcome. It's great to have you back. It must be Monday as we spend time with Mick Mulvaney each week at this time. Uh, Did they make the Fed, did the bank failures make the Fed's job easier here, Mick, or more complicated? Well, probably a little bit more complicated just because it's another variable. But your point uh, that you, Kaylee, just made is right, which is to a certain extent, this is what's supposed to happen, right? It, it feels right. When, when interest rates go up, there's going to be less lending. That, that's, that's part of demand destruction. It's part of how you handle inflation. So this is sort of going by the textbook. But I think the larger question you've raised is the better one, which is why do we have any confidence in the Fed being able to time this correctly? Why do we, why do we have the confidence that they're getting it exactly right when they've been wrong on so many things up to this point, going back to the days of transitory inflation? So look, they're really, really smart people, and I get that, but this is a really, really complex system, and why we think that just because the Fed does something it's right is beyond me. Yeah, it's definitely a difficult position that Chairman Powell and his colleagues are in. I would note also part of this survey, it's not just about the banks tightening standards, but it's also about demand for those loans. And the Fed says that we've seen the broadest share of banks with weaker loan demand since 2009, which really speaks to this idea of a slowing economy. The question, I guess, Mick, is when this gets more politically difficult, because I ask lawmakers uh, and those affiliated with the White House all the time, you know, like, would you like to see the Fed turn around and start cutting here? What do you think of Fed policy? Many of them are reluctant to comment because they want the Fed to maintain its independence. Can that last forever? Um, I hope so, um, because once we start politicizing credit, which is already starting to happen a little bit, you, you, you start to get in, in dangerous zones, right? The politicians sort of want the Fed to be independent, um, but they also sort of want the Fed to listen to them. I mean, this goes back. <laughs> this is not new. This, And it's certainly not Republican or Democrat. I mean, um, Ronald Reagan was a little worried about, you know, the recession um, that Volcker was creating a, a generation ago. So, yeah, politicians don't like it when they're in office. When the Fed has to come in and raise rates, because it does tend to, to slow down the growth in the economy. Of course, that's by design. So um, I do worry about the Fed's independence long term. There was a statement, I think, out signed by a bunch of um, Democrat lawmakers last week calling on them to stop raising interest rates and so forth. Um, you'd never know the impact that that has. 
Um, but there are some times when politicians uh, love that Fed being independent, but at the same time, they, they, they might want them to do what they want them to do to help them get reelected. I don't think I've ever asked you what used to go through your mind, Mick, when you would wake up and see that Donald Trump was tweeting at Jay Powell. <laughs> I didn't follow the president's tweets. Oh um, my God! You know, it was, it you were the that wasn't part of the job description. Yeah, that's yeah, no, actually, I know this sounds awful. I had somebody to do that um, because mm. it was a, a, almost a full-time job. So we walk in the office and go, "Did you see what he tweeted?" I'm like, "No, yeah. thank you, I, I haven't seen." But yeah, we worried. I worried about it a little bit. I worried about the the inference that we were trying to sort of influence the the, the Fed. But mm. face it, Trump was no different. Um, than anybody else. Janet Yellen is still meeting with Powell every single, uh, I think it's once a month. Uh, and you've got to believe that she's trying to sort of get her party's uh, uh, agenda, you know, in front of him. That just makes sense. That's human nature, especially with Janet Yellen, who used to be in that position. Mm-hmm. I think the better question is, was Yellen really independent when she was there in light of the fact she's later on a political appointee of the Biden administration? But no one seems to ask that question. <laughs> that was a very hard. effective answer. He spun that right around. Mick Mulvaney, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, it's not my first interview, uh, Joe. <laughs> well, we know Janet Yellen has had to do a fair share of interviews as well lately, and a lot of them center around the debt ceiling, including you know this weekend when she was speaking on one of the Sunday shows, just talking about what the options are here. I mean, talk about complicating the puzzle as it relates to the U.S. economy, what the Fed is doing, the looming potential of a default or getting close to it just becomes more and more pressure every single day, especially as we build up to this meeting tomorrow at the White House between President Biden and congressional leaders. Look, you've been in the Oval Office. I'm sure you've sat in your fair share of meetings. How do you expect this to go down tomorrow? Oh, scripted, uh, unfortunately, pretty scripted. I I hope that's not the case. I hope that there is a free flow of ideas and that everybody on both sides of the equation is willing to come in and chat if they're coming in there to sort of get their talking points together for their, 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 their statements immediately afterwards, when we call them going to the sticks, when you leave the White House and go and mm-hmm. talk in front of the microphones and so forth, um, you know, are, they, are, the, are both sides just interested in, in campaigning here? Or are they actually coming down um, with the attitude of having a discussion? I, I, you have to give Kevin McCarthy credit. He did something that no one thought he could do. He passed a bill to raise the debt ceiling. And you can criticize it, and people will from all sides. It doesn't enough. It doesn't do too much, you know, or doesn't do enough, et cetera. But he did pass a bill, and I got to think that's his opening position in these negotiations tomorrow, in these discussions. Call them what you want to, which is look, uh, of all the people sitting around the table, the only person who's passed the bill is me. So please don't ask me to negotiate against myself. Tell me what you think you can pass. Because keep in mind, 43 uh, Republican senators just signed a letter saying that they support the House position and they won't support a clean debt ceiling increase. So I think it's fair to ask the Senate, you know, what's your opening bid? Because ours is on the table. And Mitch McConnell just told Bloomberg that he's not there to save the day, that this has to come down to an agreement between Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden. Whether you agree with that and maybe he changes his tune at the last minute here, uh, Mick, it, it, it sounds to me like if this is a scripted meeting that amounts to, to very little, then Kevin McCarthy is going to come out and bash the president at the sticks, as you mentioned, when, when he talks to reporters at the stakeout in the driveway. Or, or would it be better off that he come out, speak optimistically, say that we're going to avoid a default? This was a very productive session and actually take credit for it. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to watch that because you're going to get a sense in the first 30 seconds when Kevin comes out yep. as to how the meeting went. And if it's the same talking points, it means it was heavily scripted. If he talks like you just mentioned about how we you know, made some progress, et cetera, et cetera, that would be insightful. But the most insightful thing is we used to do this from time to time is if they skip the press altogether. If the meeting goes really, really well, you might go to the sticks and say mm-hmm. how well it went. But oftentimes, if we thought we had a really good rapport with whoever was in there, Republican, Democrat, House, Senate, whatever, we might say, look, you know, maybe don't go straight to the press. We'll, we'll put out a joint statement later on. So be curious to see that not only the attitude in that in that press conference yeah. or that, 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 that appearance, but the, whether or not it happens at all. Well, it kind of raises a question of what will define the success of this meeting. What can both sides walk away with and still claim they got something out of it? Um, Kevin will Kevin wins by virtue of any negotiation because I think anything that's what at he's all at the very beginning exactly just anything even if they come in and say look we're not we're not going to negotiate the debt ceiling but we will negotiate with you on the next year spending bill 
that's a negotiation, right? And as, as long as you end up at the end of the day with something that can pass the House. But isn't that uh, what the president has been saying, Mick, is that he won't negotiate on the debt ceiling, he will negotiate on the budget? And my question is, what's the difference between the two things? You know, it, it's a negotiation and the, the lines are going to be blurred. Yes, you've got a June date, which I, I still don't believe. And I, I told you folks several times before, I thought that date was too early. Uh, so I don't think the time pressure is there. But as it moves closer and closer to September, which is when the funding bills uh, are due in, the mm. lines get blurred between a debt ceiling and a uh, and, and, and a budget sure. and expenditures bill. The idea was, though, that they there was supposed to be some sunlight in between the two. Right. Like as long as. As long as we know we're negotiating, then maybe we, we can, with the other hand, deal with the debt limit. But but he was this president said he would not tie the two together. So both sides need to come out looking like they did this the way they wanted. Right. There's There's got to right. be a and win you, for both. And you've got to find a way to save face. You, you can't you know, you can't. And that's why for, for the Biden team to come out and say we're absolutely not negotiating. That's just not that's historically indefensible that the discussions mm-hmm. around the debt ceiling in the in the in the 1990s led to the Bell's budget agreement. There was a, a, mm-hmm. an agreement in 2017 to raise spending when the Democrats uh, when the when the Trump was in office and the Democrats controlled the cards in the in the in the House and the Senate. So there's always a negotiation that that's not a tenable position to take about, you know, it's it's no negotiation at all. So my guess mm-hmm. is there will be a negotiation. It'll be up to Biden's team to try and spin that to make it look like there wasn't. Well I guess there's also a question of what happens if President Biden does say he is willing to negotiate. Negotiation by its nature means there's going to be some give and take. And yet we know that in the bill that McCarthy was able to pass, he had to meet a lot of demands from the different factions of his party. So there's a question on how much he has then the negotiating power within his own caucus to get something passed again. I mean, in that uh, interview with Mitch McConnell that Joe was referencing earlier, he said, we're in a situation now in the House of Representatives that is much more reluctant to enter a deal than we had in 2011. I mean, how hard is the composition of the House here, Mick, for McCarthy to navigate, even if he can ultimately get President Biden to budge an inch? No, that's right, Kaylee. That, that's the ultimate question here, right? The rest of it is sort of song and dance and politics and spin. That's the point. All right. This takes 60 votes in the Senate. That means it has to be a bipartisan bill. Can a bipartisan bill that passes in the Senate pass in the House with just Republican votes? There's no chance of that happening. Okay, that's just not that's not going to happen. So the house, once it passes the Senate, it, it's 60 votes, whether or not the House goes first, the Senate goes first, doesn't mm-hmm. really make any difference. It's going to be a deal that's cooked up is how big of a majority can can Kevin hold in his chamber. He's got to be able to hold a majority of the majority. He'd love to have 180, 200 votes, but you're never going to get every single Republican to vote for anything that picks up bipartisan support in the Senate just by its very nature. Well, of course, we're talking to a co-founder of the House Freedom Caucus here. <laughs> what does he do with the Ralph Normans of the world then if he can't get them on board? He just needs that many more Democrats? Yeah. Again, if you imagine this bill because of the 60 vote rule, this has to be bipartisan in order yep. to pass the Senate. Whether or not it passes the Senate first or last doesn't make any difference. Everybody knows that that's going to have to be the, the structure for it to pass in the Senate. So the question is, how big of a Republican majority can you build in the House for a package that can still get 60 votes in the Senate. That's going to be the sweet spot. There's no way Kevin will get 218 votes up from Republicans. He couldn't even get everybody to vote on this, on this last deal, right? He's going to lose some Republicans. They're going to probably be from the right-wing fringe. The question is going to be, how does he manage it? How, how does the mm-hmm. right-wing perceive that he has treated them? And also, you know, just how many, uh, how, how large majority he gets of his own conference. He cannot pass a bill with 20 Republicans and every Democrat. That is a formula for him losing his job. Hey, Mick, just quickly, we only have 30 seconds left, but how bad do things need to get in the market for the pressure to turn up a notch? Is it a thousand points on the Dow? Is there a real metric here? Yeah, probably. I mean, you go back to the uh, the, the global uh, financial crisis back in 2000. Was it eight uh, or eight? Eight? No, I lose that. Yeah, it was eight. It was. I think it was 750 points, a thousand points, something to get somebody's attention. That's back when TARP failed, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have to be a big move, and it would have to be during the session, I think, for it to sort of move the needle. Great to have you back, Mick. Imagine the world will be in a week from today. Former <laughs> OMB director, former member of Congress, former acting White House chief of staff. Fascinating situation that we're in here. So that's the new metric is a thousand dollar, a thousand points on the Dow, the new the new hundred points. I don't know. I was just throwing it out there. But I would have to imagine that the masses of America aren't necessarily paying attention to the Treasury bill curve, for example. The stock market seems to get people's attention. It sure does. And if there's one index, this is Bloomberg. 
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Nice setup with Mick Mulvaney, Kaylee, on exactly what might happen tomorrow and maybe where our expectations Mm. uh, should be as the president sits down with the leaders on the Hill. And by that, I keep saying Kevin McCarthy. Yep. Because we know that Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, Hakeem Jeffries probably will not have quite as much to say as the other two we mentioned. But, you know, look, I hope the stock market is not expecting a deal to be announced when Kevin McCarthy comes out in the driveway, if he comes out. This is the beginning, right? I know they met however many 90-something days ago, but right. this is really the, the the real meeting that could begin the process uh, for compromise. And I'm just waiting for the market to start caring. Well, the stock market, maybe, yes, right? Because right. we see it showing up in the bond market in certain points of the Treasury curve with maturities that would mature in June, kind of the month of in question here as yep. to whether or not the U.S. is going to be able to fully meet its obligations and make those payments. You're seeing it show up there, but not necessarily the kind of headline grabbing market moves within the equity market specifically, where people are looking at their 401ks and all their mutual funds and starting to really feel the sense of, uh uh-oh, this is a big deal. It doesn't feel like we're at that point yet. So I think you raise an interesting uh, question proposition here, Joe, the idea that what if the market doesn't like what it hears tomorrow? after this meeting, which could be just no progress was made or perhaps the two sides get farther apart. Uh, Because, you know, know, most Americans do not read beyond the headline. Right. And there are a lot of folks out there thinking tomorrow is going to be a big day. Right. The meeting in the Oval Office is actually (laughs) happening. I mean, we all just watched the Kentucky Derby this weekend, right? I feel like it's like the gates are opening. (laughs) Still got the whole horse race to go. How true. And that goes by pretty fast, as it turns out. Uh, Dilip Singh's fascinating conversation mm. on Bloomberg surveillance this morning. Of course, former uh, White House economic advisor in this uh, in this administration. He's now at uh, PGIM Fixed Income talking about what's the motivator here? What's the incentive? Because we don't have one. The incentives are just not yet in place. McCarthy could lose his speakership if he folds early to the president with a clean incre- increase in the debt limit. The president can't give a nod to anything near the scale of spending cuts proposed by McCarthy because they would undercut much of his domestic agenda and lose his political base. So I'm afraid market stress is still what's needed to create cover for face-saving compromise. What did you ask Mick? Is a thousand points going to do it? That's the kind of day we're talking about, though. That's what he's talking about. Yeah. Again, headline grabbing, right? That Absolutely. maybe is the kind of thing we're all just to think it's come to this. Waiting for. This yeah. is absurd. I'm sure Mark Goldwine agrees. Uh, he's with us now, the senior VP, senior policy director of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, where, you know, in a month, Mark, do you guys just close the whole shop if this doesn't get figured out? Just go on to a new line of work here. <laughs> I, if this doesn't get figured out, a lot of shops are going to be closed down. Let me tell you that. <laughs> Ooh, good one. Very nice. What is your expectation then, Mark, for this meeting tomorrow? Do you want to hear something optimistic, something positive from both both parties? Well, of course, that's what I want to hear. Look, they're not going to cut the deal. But in, in a perfect world, they would at least agree to two things. The first is we all agree we're not going to default. We all agree we're going to come to a resolution before the time is up. And the second is we're going to agree to keep talking on budget issues because the debt is out of control. That's what I'd like to hear. Whether we actually do hear that is a different question. Well, and of course, that differs slightly from the approach that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has taken, which is that he wants all of that spending talk to be tied in specifically with the debt ceiling, not with the budget. Is that the wrong approach here, do you think, Mark? Well, I I, I think it's a little bit semantics. Look, we've put budget deals and debt ceiling deals together many, many times in the past, in the Trump era, in the Obama era, going back to Reagan. And that's fine. I think doing it on separate tracks is fine. There's no one right way to do it. But the one wrong thing would be to let us actually go over the cliff and to default on our debt. 
So where's the committee right now on an outcome here? I know you're not on the forecasting business, Mark, uh, but sh- but should the markets be more concerned than they are now? I know we're seeing gyrations in the yield curve here, but the stock markets whistling past the graveyard, a lot more concerned with, with earnings reporting season and inflation, even as we get some very real warnings uh, from researchers and, and policymakers on this. So I, I think if we're... Fe- thinking about what's the median scenario or even what's the middle 70 yeah. percent the markets are in the right place we're going to resolve this but mm. we need to be thinking about tail end risk here and the tail end risk is too high for comfort and probably high enough that the markets ought to at least be a little bit concerned well it to this kind of point it's the idea that the market's been through this dance before it has observed right the very slow pace of deal-making uh, in Washington and how difficult it has been throughout history to, to actually get this done. You know, this isn't our first our first go-around, but it does raise a question of why we need to keep going through this song and dance. And I know that the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget has suggested reforms to the debt ceiling. Once we even get through this episode, how do we avoid doing this again? What could be done to help yeah. not ha- have this problem in the future? Well, I think the debt ceiling is a very poorly designed mechanism for a very important goal, which is we need a way to make sure that we are generally reevaluating and evaluating our fiscal situation. Because if you look at our debt, it's about to hit a record level, exceeding World War II levels. If you look at the inflation rate, which isn't entirely because of fiscal policy, but fiscal policy is certainly a factor here, it's out of control. If you look at interest rates, they're rising. So we do need to actually take a look at the budget. And the debt ceiling offers an opportunity to do that. It's just too high stakes. We need a way to reform it so that um, the consequence of inaction is politicians get punished, but the economy doesn't, um, you know, get thrown down the toilet in the process. How come nobody wants to talk about a short-term anything right now, Mark? It seems like we could buy a minute. And is it really because we can't get anything done unless it's the night before, you know, a fiscal calamity? Uh, or, or is the idea that we want to seize the opportunity? Everyone's at the table. Why would you extend it? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it give you some peace of mind to see the debt ceiling uh, suspended, for instance, till September, and all the stuff be negotiated yeah. together? You know, normal convention used to be people would hold the debt limit, quote unquote, hostage all the time, but you were only holding hostage the long term increases. So we used to say all the time, "We'll give you a short term increase. We're just not giving you a long term <laughs> increase until you agree tax or agree to why." And that may be what happens again. It's not clear if people are really against the short-term increase or if that's just rhetoric. But um, I I would hope certainly short-term is better than going off the cliff. Yeah, and there's also a question of whether everyone could get behind a short-term increase because members of Congress and members of the Senate that I've spoken with in the last week have said, no, they think that's a bad idea. Senator J.D. Vance being one, Byron Donalds, the congressman from Florida, being another. Of course, what... Republicans have said that they wanted is deficit reduction at the end of the day, Mark. So when we were thinking about the shape that these negotiations, uh, how it could take shape, and whether spending cuts or revenue raising measures should be part of the puzzle, what what is your suggestion? Well, I, I think the House is actually on the right track. Um, I, I think we need to, do need to have discretionary spending caps. The appropriators have really been out of control since 2018, in fact, it started in the Trump presidency, um, but especially since the caps expired. And it is time to rein that in. So I, I think they're on the right track there. But they have to be caps that both sides can agree to. I think if you look at the House bill as an opening offer, that's something we can negotiate from. It's not where we're going to land. Well, I guess we're going to find out at least tomorrow if, if this timeline might work. Mark, I don't know if you feel that way, but just the, to see the beginnings uh, of compromise might go a long way to soothing some minds here and, you know, digging into something substantial. We spoke earlier, as I mentioned, with Mick Mulvaney. He said if you do not see Kevin McCarthy outside in the driveway after this meeting, it could be either really good or really bad. But if they're really onto something, he may not want to be talking to reporters. Yeah. Is, is that how you see it? If we don't hear anything tomorrow, it might be actually a very good thing. Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of times no news is good news. But look, I don't expect they're going to have resolution coming out of this meeting. We should have done this yeah. meeting four months ago. Yep. Um, but this is the start of a process. Uh, they are going to probably take every minute, every day that they have before the X date to, to get to the end of this process. And let's just all hope together that uh, they don't accidentally go too long. 
Yeah, well, there's a question of what that timeline really is, Joe, because, of course, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said as early as June 1st, leaves some room, some margin (laughs) for error there. There's also the the question of when it gets to be too much for the credit rating agencies as well. Yeah, we were two weeks away last time, and we're kind of wondering how close we're going to get this time. Uh, We're out of time, Mark, but do you have a take on that? Should we be worried more about a downgrade right now? Uh, If we go over the debt limit, we are very likely to get downgraded, yes. How about in advance Um, of that, though? Sorry, say that again? How about in advance of it? It came two weeks earlier than actual defaulting in 2011. Uh, It depends how close a game of chicken. If we're in in June and they're able to stretch the X date out, which I think is very possible because June 15th is a tax payment, we may have come close enough to... uh, it's flowing close enough for the sun, and that is enough for a downgrade. But my guess is if we don't actually um, miss a payment or almost miss a payment, yep. we won't get the downgrade. Mark Goldwine, great to have you back. Mark, don't be a stranger with the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Just a question of how close to the sun we mm, fly. I Icarus. Guess. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. With news coming out of the Fed today, of course, it was not about interest rates today, uh, Kaylee, but the banks and whether they're still lending as much here. It's something we're going to talk about with Michael McKee, but following the interest rate hikes and then, of course, the bank failures that we've seen, there were a lot of questions about what this was going to look like. Yeah, there were. How much are credit conditions in the economy really tightening? Because we've heard repeatedly from the Federal Reserve as far back as the March meeting when they did hike in the aftermath of those failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank that they did expect it would lead to some tightening of standards. It was just a question of how much it was unknown what was going to happen. So we were looking at the data to really give us a sense. Mm -hmm. And mind you, this is data that the Fed did have in hand when it made its decision last week. Chairman Powell at the press conference alluded to the fact that it was going to show a tightening in standards. And indeed, that is what the data showed. The proportion of U.S. banks tightening terms on loans for medium and large businesses rose to 46 percent. That was up from 44.8 percent in the fourth quarter of last year. Let's get Mm -hmm. some more perspective on this and bring in Michael McKee, Bloomberg's international economics and policy correspondent. So, Mike, I guess you would call it a moderate tightening in conditions? How do you read this? Uh, It's actually kind of a a very small tightening in conditions uh, when you add the tightening for small businesses to large businesses, you get a bit of an increase. But when you look at the large and medium-sized businesses tightening, uh, it went from 1.5% to 3.2% for tightening considerably because two banks tightened their credit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> standards mm. and uh, tightened somewhat went down from 43.3 to 42.9 percent. So uh, it looks like fewer banks were tightening their credit standards uh, unchanged, basically 54 percent. So majority of banks had not changed their lending standards. Uh, we expect to see a percentage like 42.9 percent for tightened somewhat in a situation like we're in right now when the economy is supposed to be slowing and the Fed has raised interest rates so much. But we thought, or at least a lot of people thought, we would see a considerable tightening uh, effort after the bank ructions of mid-March. And that uh, does not appear to have happened. Well, I guess it's a question then, Mike, of what tightening is yet to come because, you know, there is a paragraph in the report here that basically talks about banks' outlook for lending standards over the remainder of 2023. And they say banks reported expecting to tighten standards across all loan categories. So is it the idea of we just haven't seen the bulk of it yet? Well, that's possible. The Fed has talked about how they uh, don't think that uh, we've seen much of the impact of tightening so far. Uh, They've been tightening for a little over a year, 525 basis points. But the majority of that is yet to hit the economy. And the other question that comes up then is uh, how long does it take tightening credit standards to have an impact? And research shows maybe about a year. So we should start to see it, if not in this report, the next time. But the bottom line, uh, Kaylee, is that when you look at the H8 report, which I'm sure you did on Friday, uh, of bank lending, mm-hmm. uh, bank lending has resumed rising which is the bottom line of all this. If banks are lending, still lending money to uh, companies, then we don't have a credit crunch yet. 
So then, Michael, can we call this good news? Uh, I think you could call it good news or just sort of um, news that doesn't really affect a whole lot at this point. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, it's a survey of how bankers feel about what they're doing, so it's not hard data. Mm -hmm. So you can't really say it proves a whole lot. You get more out of the H-8 report uh, than in terms of hard data than you get from this. But it does give you sort of the mood music, and the mood music is, uh, I guess, you point to the basically unchanged part. Well, on the subject of, of mood music and just Fed reports, we get another one this afternoon at 4 p.m. The financial stability report will be dropping, Mike. Could that one be more interesting? I, I don't think so, and I, I'm not trying to downplay it, but it's going to be backward looking. It's going to tell us mm. what uh, happened in March, which we already know. And so uh, I don't think it's going to be making a judgment on the stability of all these banks today, which is kind of what all investors are looking at. Um, they seem to be feeling better about the banks, but we've seen a lot of volatility in that. So it will be interesting to read and interesting to see where the Fed saw problems, but I don't think it's going to give us much of a heads up about where we're going to go from here. Spending time with Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent with us from New York. Can't have you here without asking you about the debt limit uh, debate here in Washington, Michael, and the, the view from the market as you consider interest rates, as you consider bond yields towards, say, the end of the day tomorrow, and we're going to get some kind of a readout on this meeting. What are investors actually looking for? Are they realistic that this is going to take more than tomorrow to figure out? Well, I think it's very uh, realistic that we're going to get this punted down the road. I don't think there's Does the market much know that, though. Yeah, I think the market uh, believes that. And I think I said last week that one reason we're not seeing the market uh, react lately is because they do think they will fail in the short run and that this will just get kicked down the road that nobody wants to default so they'll pass a temporary measure and maybe push this out to September 30th and then uh, everybody can sort of forget about it for a couple of months until uh, the headlines start <laughs> arriving about uh, we're getting close to the default date. So it sounds Kaylee like the market expects nothing tomorrow. Well, and maybe nothing's what they'll get, so maybe but that is a, good, a, a, right? a, a matching of expectations. Can't disappoint perhaps, a market Joe. expecting nothing. Exactly. You'll get nothing, and you'll like it. That's yeah. Correct. Well, and so I guess this kind of raises the question of: Is the only thing, whether we get it from the U.S. government or from the Federal Reserve, that matters next week, actually just the inflation print on Wednesday? Right. That is, I think, uh, a correct uh, view, Kaylee, because uh, we've got another inflation print, another CPI and, another, and a PCE report before the next Fed meeting. We've got another jobs report. We've got a couple of retail sales reports. So there's a lot of data still to come between now and then. And inflation is what's really driving the Fed. Uh, Jay Powell made that clear at the last meeting. So uh, if you're going to have a market view based on what you think the Fed is going to do, I think you're yeah. going to build it around the CPI. Mm. Great to talk to you, Michael. As always, Michael McKee with us from World Headquarters in New York. So Wednesday, Kaylee, could be the day. If there's going to be a big market puke, if, if Kevin <laughs> McCarthy says, this went off the rails, I don't trust yeah. Joe Biden, then the next morning you get a bad number on the CPI. Did you say puke? At 930, that's when it gets real, <laughs> right? Sorry. Carol Masser here's one later. word in, in one way. One word only. She's seen her no, face. No, but I think that's, <laughs> that's a like really a good point, Is like a puke go on the terminal? There's, you know, Kaylee Lines introduced me to that, actually, <laughs> that, that turn of phrase, because right. it actually be means something, right? Yeah, well... There are days where the market just objectively looks like it's puking. Exactly. We'll see if we get so one of those this week. Wait for Wednesday at 930. No pressure at the White House. For Kaylee Lyons, I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.